criminal charges against a former Canuck. This is obviously a very sensitive case. The sexual assault allegations Jake Vertanen is facing and reaction from the team. Unmasked at Rogers Arena. It's not an issue of eating nachos for three hours. So you don't have to wear your mask. There's not a loophole. Hockey fans accused of not playing by the rules. And flood fears on Sumas Prairie. This is exactly what Canada is desperately afraid of. The risk from the Nooksack River and how a U.S. proposal could have cross-border implications. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Former Vancouver Canucks forward Jake Vertanen has now been charged with sexual assault in connection with an incident that allegedly occurred in 2017. Let's go straight to our Ahmad Agahi for the details on this. Ahmad, we first heard about these allegations in May of last year. Yeah, and that's also when Vancouver police said that they were made aware of the allegations and when they launched their investigation. You may remember some of those allegations were quite public at the time because they were made in the media and at the time Vertanen was suiting up for the Vancouver Canucks each night. Well, Vancouver police have concluded that investigation today. Vancouver police announced Thursday morning that an investigation into former Vancouver Canucks hockey player Jake Vertanen has concluded resulting in a charge of one count of sexual assault against the 25-year-old. Police say the charge is in relation to an incident that happened in Vancouver on September 26, 2017, while Vertanen was playing for the Canucks in the NHL. But it was not until last May when police launched the investigation after the now 23-year-old victim came forward to them. It is very important to commend victims um, coming forward, whether it be, or anytime there's a, a personal crime, especially uh, um, one of sexual nature, um, I can imagine how difficult that would be, um, especially when there is a suspect who is, um, has a high profile in the community. Also in May, the Vancouver Canucks placed Vertanen on leave after allegations of sexual misconduct were made against him. Then in July, the Canucks bought out Vertanen's contract, ending his tenure with the organization. Vertanen still plays hockey professionally in Russia, and police say he is not yet in custody. Vertanen has issued a statement through his agent. In it, Vertanen denies the allegations of non-consensual sexual contact with the complainant. He has sent police a statement denying the allegations. He took a polygraph examination and provided that report to police, the statement says. And Mr. Vertanen continues to maintain his innocence and looks forward to defending himself at trial. Crown is in contact with his lawyer, so I presume that they will have conversations uh, surrounding how to uh, compel him to court or what the best way would be to compel him to court. Hmm. All right, about what have we heard today from the Canucks about this charge? Well, the Vancouver Canucks issued their own statement shortly after this news came out. We have some of that statement for you. Um, in it, the organization says it has been in contact with the Vancouver Police Department throughout their investigation and will continue to provide support as needed. It says our organization is committed to fostering a safe and welcoming environment and will not tolerate sexual misconduct of any kind. And in that statement, the Canucks also reiterate that Vertanen is no longer a part of that organization. 
We'll see where this goes. Thanks for that, Amadagahi, reporting outside Rogers Arena. Well, the Canucks are on the road tonight after a three-game homestand that had many people asking questions about the mask rules inside Rogers Arena. It wasn't hard to spot unmasked faces in the stands. So who's enforcing the public health order? Richard Zussman has more. It is the most visible breach of BC's COVID-19 safety plans. Fans at Rogers Arena not wearing their mask. Uh, what I'd say to the fans is that uh, they have a responsibility to wear their masks and they should wear their masks. Under current restrictions, capacity at Rogers Arena is capped at 50%. And everyone must wear a mask unless actively eating or drinking. In a statement, the Vancouver Canucks say they have increased enforcement of mask wearing, including more reminders on the big screen, increased signage, and verbal reminders from hosts in the stands. The team says a few fans have been removed due to not following the rules. Public health is in regular contact with the Canucks, and these are issues that I'm sure they'll be talking about because uh, they want uh, the system to be more effective. Different arenas have different policies. For example, in Edmonton, fans cannot bring their food and drink to their seats. They must consume them in designated areas. It's not something the province will be pushing the Canucks and Rogers Arena to do. One would expect the government would take it seriously if they're putting conditions in place, that they would expect those to be uh, followed. There should be consequences when COVID safety plans aren't followed. The BC Greens are also pushing more broadly for the province to provide data on the age of people hospitalized with COVID. A hope more data would lead to more people following the rules. The Canucks games also driving frustration in other sectors, especially those who plan and support weddings, where receptions are currently not allowed. We as an industry have really felt ignored um, and in many ways belittled and just misunderstood. And if anything, an event is a more controlled environment than something like a Canucks game. The wedding sector hoping for some certainty, at least a plan for the spring and whether events will be allowed as the busy season heats up. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's take a look now at the latest COVID-19 numbers for BC. There are 977 people in hospital. That is up 28. 141 of those patients are in intensive care. 13 more people have died from complications of the virus. And there are currently 29,556 active cases in BC, with more than 2,000 of those new cases. Keith Baldry joins us live from Victoria with more. Keith, you have a closer look at some interesting new data around those hospitalizations, including ICU. Yeah, I thought it'd be interesting just to take a look at uh, some of the health indicators right now that are uh, driving our pandemic. Uh, the number of people in hospital continues to go up, and it doesn't really reflect it by the daily number because on a daily basis, we're averaging right now 95 people a day testing positive in hospitals. But keep in mind, many people are being discharged. That's why the 95 isn't reflected in the daily number. Good news, we're now crossed the 2 million threshold for booster doses, 46% now administered, doing about 50,000 a day. There are seven 
7,000 new unvaccinated patients in the ICU. They now represent almost half the patients in the ICU, almost just a little under 10% of the population make up half the beds in the ICU when it comes to COVID-19. And 70 of those ICU patients are on ventilators. That's an increase of several since yesterday. Last week, last Monday, we were at 45 people. So that number has exploded in number. We caught up with Health Minister Adrian Dix today, who sort of put a personal take on why you should get vaccinated, depending on your, particularly depending on your age and your underlying uh, health conditions. Here's the minister. In terms of your outcome, in personal terms, oh, I'm 57. I have type 1 diabetes. Um, it, uh, it, I would be uh, twice as likely to be hospitalized if I test positive for COVID-19 um, without my booster shot. I'd be 10 times as likely if I hadn't been vaccinated. 10 times is a huge risk factor for everybody, especially when you have other, uh, other conditions. So uh, everybody should get vaccinated. You can see it in the numbers. It helps and protects everybody. So sticking with the vaccination uh, angle, uh, again, it's great news. We've crossed the 2 million uh, threshold for uh, third doses, but we're still lagging uh, well behind getting kids 5 to 11 vaccinated. We're only at about 177,000. That's a little more than 50%. So we've got one of the lowest rates in Canada when it comes to that age group. Hmm. Hopefully those numbers go up. All right, thanks for that, Keith. Students at various post-secondary schools throughout the province have been lobbying for hybrid learning options during the pandemic. And now a group of dental hygiene students is joining that plea, saying their school is not providing a safe environment for in-person learning. Nithu Garcha has more on their claims and the health ministry's response. Crowned classrooms, poor air circulation, and COVID exposures. In the first week of school, I believe in one of our classes, there was five students who were missing, and then there was an extra three who contracted COVID. Have these Vancouver College of Dental Hygiene students speaking out? We've agreed to conceal their identity as they fear being reprimanded for doing so. We've been told that if we're not comfortable, we can drop the program. With other institutions like UBC moving to online learning amid the rapid spread of Omicron, this group feels ignored. We do have a lunch area, um, but we're also sharing the area with 150 other students. A smaller campus with not enough space has them pleading for a return to last semester's hybrid model of learning with virtual classes and on-campus clinical studies. For a clinical part, it's a completely different room. We have all our PPE on. And it's only be two students per opportunity, and it's quite the distance, you know. But the students say despite having support from some of their instructors, they've been given the runaround. After taking their concerns to the administration and the province, including how in the last week an instructor tested positive and taught from home, but the students still had to watch the virtual lecture from inside the crammed classroom. And how access to amenities like the microwave and water fountain have been removed in a personal decision from the college's health committee. We do have to be vaccinated for other things like influenza, hepatitis, and that's a requirement before we enter this program, but the COVID vaccine has not been mandated yet. The college didn't respond to our request for comment, but in a statement, the Ministry of Health said in part, public and private institutions are expected to follow the COVID-19 return to campus guidelines. Students who see safety violations are encouraged to report them to their local bylaw officers. Neetu Garcha, Global News, New Westminster.
Metro Vancouver mayors are asking for more money from Ottawa to make up for continued pandemic revenue losses at TransLink. As Ted Trenecki reports, officials say without some clarity as to what Ottawa will provide, there could be substantial changes to service. If you thought in Vancouver isn't what it used to be, you're right. TransLink has been reducing services in lower-use areas like Vancouver and moving some of the fleet to where ridership is stronger, like Delta and Surrey, because TransLink is projecting a $200 million revenue loss this year. So that's the equivalent of about a third of bus services here in the region. That's the equivalent of all the bus service in Vancouver and Burnaby it's combined. And if we don't have clarity on that, there's some significant service changes and cuts that are likely going to happen. The clarity of which he speaks is from Ottawa. It has yet to commit to a continuation of subsidies to help transit authorities across the country cope with reduced revenues. Currently, TransLink is reporting ridership at about 60% of pre-pandemic levels. It's looking at losses of about $200 million this year and probably losses again next year. Last year, $644 million under the Safe Start Agreement was handed over to TransLink from Ottawa and B.C. to cover those losses. At today's Transport 2050 announcement, TransLink's CEO said it was even more important than ever to maintain service levels. And that's because we're at an inflection point for our future. With the climate emergency and the global pandemic occurring simultaneously, we're in the midst of facing two of the biggest challenges of this century. These two emergencies have disrupted our way of life and challenged so many of us to rethink how we live and how we want our future to look. He says we must expand electrified service to help reduce carbon emissions. But the reality is, if there's no clarity on whether this year's operating deficit will again be paid for by taxpayers, services will have to be cut. Nobody at TransLink wants to cut service, but if you cut transit service, it has additional negative benefits. If you cut service, you reduce ridership, you reduce attraction to service, and then you further reduce ridership. So it turns into this vicious cycle. TransLink is projecting reduced ridership for at least two more years, and even then it might only be 80 to 90 percent of pre-pandemic levels. It depends on how many former commuters work from home permanently. Ted Chernecki, Global News. A Vancouver business owner thought she was doing the sustainable thing by stocking up on biodegradable bags for her customers. Well, now she's left holding the bag, thousands of them, thanks to Vancouver's ban on single-use plastics, why she can't even give them away, and how the city is now revisiting at least part of its zero-waste plan. Next on the News Hour. Rolling into the GTA, truckers take their outrage over vaccine mandates to Toronto, with plenty of anger directed at the media. And dive instructor to the stars, the BC man making a splash in Hollywood. That's coming up later. Right now, though, less than a month into the city of Vancouver's single-use cup bylaw, council has voted unanimously to have staff revisit the fee. Businesses are required to charge customers 25 cents for single-use paper or plastic cups. The fees appear to be hurting those with low or no incomes the most. Some businesses and drive throughs are also not accepting reusable cups. The bylaw was already delayed a year because of COVID. Councillor Rebecca Bly, who brought that motion forward, says the idea that businesses have invested in alternatives or planned inventory to not have disposable cups is simply not playing out. I'm not sure where that narrative came from in terms of there being an urgency from the business community to get going on this bylaw. Uh, I think we missed the mark with this one.
voting to bring this out this particular January 2022, with everything else going on, I think we just didn't go back to it with a critical thinking lens and say, is this actually what we should be doing at this particular time? Staff will review the many scenarios where the single-use bylaw is not working and report back to council within eight weeks. Now, when it comes to plastic shopping bags, the city says there's no grace period for using up existing stock, as that would be unfair to businesses who were able to run down their inventory in time. As Christian Robinson reports, that leaves few options for merchants who ordered green bags in bulk well in advance of the new rules. What you're seeing here is roughly about 2,400 bags. Some of the 20,000 biodegradable bags Lisa Simpson purchased 22 months before Vancouver's single-use bylaw was adopted. We thought we were doing the right thing. With plastic shopping bags banned, the distillery owner doesn't know what to do with these and 14,000 more in her supplier's warehouse. It's incredibly frustrating knowing that instead of running down an inventory balance that's still providing use to a consumer, we're just going to mass dump into, I don't know where, an abyss. There's no point in, in you know, disposing of inventory um, because the intent of the bylaw is obviously to reduce waste. Once something's already been produced, um, it makes a lot of sense to just use it up. It would also be labeled as a $3,000 loss for Simpson who's poured everything into her small business amid COVID tariffs and transportation issues. Our costs are increasing every day by no less than 20%. To learn about her options, Simpson ordered a single-use toolkit. This is just the remnants of what I kept. The thick paper trail with many duplicates in the same language says extra plastic shopping bags should be donated to charity or sold to businesses outside of Vancouver. I don't understand why selling to another municipality makes sense. It just doesn't make sense. You've got to go back to common sense and reasonableness um, to sell her bags to another municipality when they have her brand on them. We offered the city an opportunity to explain, but we're told the zero waste manager is under a big capacity crunch and unable to do an interview. This is 250 units. Because paper takes up more space, Simpson can only order 250 at a time. Her cost, 48 cents per bag. Customers pay 25 cents. I am losing money on every single bag. Even with the extra baggage, she's putting her trust in compliance. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Vancouver City Council has passed a motion that would allow the owners of about 2,000 single-family homes to develop them into strata units. The proposal by Mayor Kennedy Stewart would allow for up to six units on one lot. As seen in this architect's rendering, the homes would be allowed a modest height increase, but would for the most part have to blend in with the existing neighborhood. Stewart says the goal of the program is to create housing stock that would be affordable to middle-income earners Households making $80,000 a year. The money generated by the increased property value would either be used by the homeowner to make the changes or would be captured by the city and spent on creating rental housing. City staff has been told to make the plan workable by the end of this year. Up next, investigating a family tragedy in Richmond. This does not appear to be an incident of intimate partner violence. What we're learning about the shooting deaths of four people in the same home. And later, bottle scalping, how a taste for rare whiskey is opening up a lucrative black market. 
Two lanes north and one south at the Lionsgate Bridge. Still seeing some backups in both directions, but especially from north and west Vancouver. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. We are learning more tonight about a family tragedy in led to the deaths of a mother, father, and two children. Catherine Urquhart has new details into the fatal shooting, including why police are not seeking any suspects. A family of four lived inside a unit at this Richmond fourplex on Garden City. That is until Monday, when the parents and two adult children were all gunned down in a multiple murder-suicide. We're able to confirm that all persons involved in and responsible for the homicide were located at the scene. There are no suspects at large, and IHIT is not looking for any additional persons. Sources have told Global News several guns were registered to the location and that the police investigation is focused on the adult son. The integrated homicide investigation team isn't confirming that, but said this. While it is still early in the investigation, this does not appear to be an incident of intimate partner violence. Police say the family was not connected to any criminal activity. For now, they're not revealing names of those involved, as next-of-kin notifications are ongoing. It's very sad. Not only the family, even us as neighbours, we, we, we feel bad. What motivated this horrific crime remains unclear. Neighbours describe the family as friendly and quiet, with no apparent issues. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Vancouver police are renewing a warning to seniors about scammers who call pretending to be family members in trouble with the law. Police released footage of one such scam January 14th. A suspect walks up to a door, tells the victim he's picking up money to get their nephew out of jail. The suspect makes off with about eight grand handed over in an envelope. Since then, Vancouver police say they have investigated more than a dozen similar cases, the most recent coming this week. These fraudsters are now becoming more sophisticated and creative to avoid being caught. The most recent case happened about two days ago when a 73-year-old woman from South Vancouver received a call from someone posing as her granddaughter. The caller claimed they were in jail and they needed $10,000 in bail money. What is concerning about this case is the fraudsters knew that the victim was of Portuguese descent and even said words in Portuguese. Police think the fraudster learned details about the victim through social media. Up next, fear of the next flood in Abbotsford. It was the most terrifying situation I've ever been in. What U.S. officials are proposing that could pose a serious risk here. Plus, the rolling protest against vaccine mandates and COVID restrictions and a host of other grievances. Children cannot learn when they are hungry. Food insecurity also affects their mental health. That's why Global News and the Grocery Foundation are partnering for Toonies for Tummies and nourishing children in countless communities. Donate today to Toonies for Tummies in-store or online. Traffic on Highway 1 eastbound has eased off quite nicely through Burnaby after clearing a couple of earlier problems, just seeing some minor delays at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. This is not about no mandates for truckers. It is about no mandates for all.
Canadians! A vocal protest against vaccine mandates arrived in the Toronto area today. The convoy that began here in B.C. and picked up participants along the way is on its way to Ottawa this weekend, stopping today in Canada's biggest city. People in the crowd expressing their distrust of the federal government, vaccines and the media. MPs have been warned protesters may have their home addresses. NDP MP Charlie Angus taking to Twitter to say he and his staff are being targeted, but he says he he will not be intimidated. BC's top court has reinstated an old-growth logging protest injunction on Vancouver Island. In a unanimous decision, three appeal court judges had harsh words for the organized activists at Ferry Creek. Kylie Stanton has reaction from all parties involved. The war that started in the woods has made its way to the courts. And this time around, Teal Jones Group won the battle. So we're quite pleased with that outcome. In a unanimous ruling, BC's Court of Appeal reinstated the injunction, allowing the logging company to continue harvesting in Tree Farm License 46. The area has been the site of intense, sometimes violent protests. Activists trying to stop the old growth logging they claim threatens the watershed. All this despite repeated requests by local First Nations to leave their territory. The pressure on our employees put by all of the dramatics is significant and is real. In the decision, the three-judge panel states, protests are part of a healthy democracy. Criminal conduct is not. In the circumstances of this case, the injunction is all that stands between Teal Cedar and a highly organized group of individuals who are intent on breaking the law to get their way. It is seeming to, to paint the whole movement with one brush. Um, what gets lost in the shuffle is all of these people with legitimate interests. Last fall, a judge denied the injunction extension, citing police actions, calling the enforcement a substantial infringement of civil liberties, and allowing it to continue would damage the court's reputation. But the appeal court disagreed, saying the conduct of the police does not tarnish the reputation of the court. The court and police are constitutionally independent, while reiterating the court is not the place to argue public policy. And this is not the first judge to say this, which is government, do your job. People voted NDP with the expectation that they would put in place policies to protect old growth forests in this province. And uh, their approach has created enormous conflict. And it also comes at an enormous cost to taxpayers. RCMP enforcement of the injunction is now approaching $10 million. And with it now in place until the end of September, that's only expected to climb. Protesters have no plans to back down. The fight is not over. Kylie Stanton, Global News. In the interior, flood mitigation work has now begun on Highway 3, just east of Princeton, after the Similkameen River overflowed its banks back in December, triggering devastating flooding. Princeton Mayor Spencer Coyne says the work is slowly being done, but the weather is not helping and they desperately need more funding. Meanwhile, some residents just outside town tell Global News they have been overlooked. They say they're being hindered by red tape between the regional district and the province. Others express concerns about the need to maintain the dike to prevent floodwaters from rising again and wiping out the highway. This being the only highway that's running through the interior of B.C., it has to be maintained. Where's the federal government in all of this? 
um, the municipalities, the regional districts, the province are, are doing as much as they can, but um, we still haven't seen any of that $5 billion roll out. Coyne adds the town of Princeton is working with the regional district to figure out long-term relief plans for all those who were impacted by the floods. Now, a new flood mitigation proposal by officials in Washington state is making people who live on the Sumas Prairie in B.C. more than a little nervous. As John Hua reports, the plan would send future floodwaters from the Nooksack River north toward the Canadian border. The memory of flood sirens blaring from south of the border continues to haunt the residents of Huntington Village today. I can't even put it into words. It was the most terrifying situation I've ever been in. Months after water from the Nooksack River flowed north into Abbotsford, whispers of plans to create new floodways in Whatcom County, causing waves of fear to wash over this community. It's hard not to be emotional when it directly affects you personally. The devastation from last year's flooding means Washington State is looking at buying up properties to create new floodways, where the water had nowhere else to go but through businesses and homes. I'm sure you all recognize the border crossing there, but you can see there's really not a good corridor that's open for water to flow. So hopefully we can create something like that. A key concern raised where that water will go once it hits the border. This is going to be a a pretty problematic issue if we don't have a plan and we're perceived as making a highway through Sumas and straight into Abbotsford. We know that if we cut off all the water that goes to Canada, that we're going to have downstream impacts. In a statement, the city of Abbotsford writes, while we are pleased that Whatcom County is considering options for their local communities, the discussions that were had at the meeting underscore Abbotsford's need for the federal and provincial government to be at the table as we work to address solutions. We just got to throw up a wall, like uh, we just got to put up a hydrophobic barrier or something. Trying to block the water at the border, also a huge concern in Whatcom County. The hope is communities on both sides can deal with and divert their share of the overflow. There has to be a more uh, organized and systematic way of dealing with this instead of just saying, this is what we're doing and um, good luck to you all. While planning is still in the preliminary stages, the push is on for residents in Abbotsford to have their say instead of being drowned out until the next siren blares. John Hua, Global News. Vancouver Island's chief medical health officer held one of his last news conferences today to announce his official retirement. After devoting 26 years to the health of Islanders, Dr. Richard Stanwick is calling it a career at the end of this month. He stayed on an extra month because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Stanwick is known for spearheading a ban on smoking in the capital region in 1999, and he thanked the public for helping make Victoria a groundbreaking community who supported significant efforts, such as us being the first in Victoria clean indoor air location in Canada and served as the model for the rest of Canada. Much of the progress that we have made in the area of creating clean air originated here because of bold populations, politicians and public health officials. Dr. Stanwick says one of his most satisfying accomplishments was being part of a campaign to ensure that Van- or Victoria's water supply was safe and among the best in the world. Just ahead, liquid gold on the black market. And the demand is really being driven uh, by whiskey collectors and worse, whiskey hoarders. 
calls for a crackdown on whiskey bootleggers. And later, I worked with this amazing like free diver. Waiting to exhale, the BC diver in demand in Hollywood. Just Christy Gordon with a look at that weather forecast. Managed to see some very nice sunshine today, Christy. Big change today, Sophie. Yeah, we were able to see sunshine in many parts of the south coast. Um, it's basically because this upper level ridge is starting to break down. That's not the case in the interior. And we'll have a look at your forecast first. As always, with this type of scenery, you got to show some photos. So this one from uh, Jay Kent from the Cypress Lookout. Stunning from earlier this morning. Uh, this one from Whistler. Thank you to Steve for that one. And look at this one. I love it. Looking out over the Burnaby area. Thank you to Raymond for that one. And we have a ton of other frost flower photos or hair ice. I've got a full explanation of how this is created on our website. You can go there now and see more photos and the science behind this. But thank you. Yeah, lots of people out there this morning uh, capturing, capturing photos of this. So this big upper level ridge is starting to break down. We're starting to see a bit more of a westerly flow and we'll continue to see that into the weekend. That's why this inversion in the fog is starting to dissipate. So tomorrow and tonight we're going to see the fog redevelop. It will be thick again tomorrow morning but we'll we are expecting it to dissipate those of you in the interior though we are not expecting it to as that upper level ridge sort of shifts into your region you'll likely continue to see that valley fog through much of the day metro vancouver enjoy that sunshine again tomorrow uh, we are expecting a mix of sun and cloud on saturday but increasing cloud expected late in the day and then periods of rain by saturday night and continuing into our sunday sophie tonight center windows weather window is coming out of powell river uh david send me actually two images like this beautiful colors david uh terrific scenery over that fog i'm actually gonna miss the fog not being in it sophie but i'm gonna miss <laughs> the fog photos over the next little while yeah some gorgeous photos out there all right thanks for that christy private liquor sellers in bc are accusing government retailers of not doing enough to crack down on the scalping associated with the release of limited edition spirits Paul Johnson has more on what's driving the black market for whiskey and why industry veterans say there are few consequences for bootleggers. We've all heard of concert ticket scalping, but how about scalping of another precious commodity that also lifts the spirit? The uh, BCLDB government liquor stores did a special limited release of super rare Beam Centauri products, including McAllen, Bowmore, and a few other items. BC government liquor stores recently had a special sale of highly sought-after whiskey. You might expect this was a joyous occasion for our province's whiskey lovers, who happily restocked the top shelves of their bars. But apparently, something else happened. A lot of those bottles quickly ended up on Craigslist instead of in the, uh, the hands of people that actually wanted to drink the whiskey at far inflated prices. Bottle scalping. Bring up Craigslist and you can see all across the lower mainland bottles of rare scotch going for sometimes thousands of dollars. While Global News can't confirm how many of these may have been sourced through the recent government sale, Vancouver liquor industry veteran Daryl Lamb says the timing is certainly suspicious. There's a lot of people doing this and nothing's being done about it. We've seen in past stories how the B.C. government is willing to get quite aggressive in protecting its control over the liquor distribution system. The raid of Vancouver's Fett's Whiskey Kitchen a few years back is one example. 
So why no apparent consequences for what Lamb calls a form of bootlegging? The thing that they should be doing is enforce the laws of British Columbia and actually start taking down the bottle scalpers. BC's Liquor and Cannabis Regulation Branch says while the bulk of their enforcement work is with businesses, when they get reports, they do crack down on online profiteers. The centuries-old struggle between bootleggers and the law, apparently still alive and well. Paul Johnson, Global News. Do you need a moment to compose yourself, catch your breath? Diaphragmatic breathing. Good, I got it. Here we go. Okay. I don't have a lot to read. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Vanny Sartini is happy with how the Whitecaps training camp has gone so far. Uh, it helps a lot that, uh, you know, the core of the group is the same as last year. Yes, the Whitecaps coach wants to make training camp more fun than it usually is. Also tonight, a deep dive into the world of Kirk Kroc and how he's taught Tom Cruise a thing or two. Vander Kane gets another chance, but we'll start with the Canucks. Uh, yes, yes, fire. they're in Winnipeg right now. And uh, the Canucks still don't have everybody back from COVID protocol, but they are getting closer. Connor Garland and Yaroslav Halak are with them in Winnipeg tonight. Demko and Horvat should be back Saturday. And despite Halak returning, the Canucks had to go with Spencer Martin in goal because Halak hasn't practiced enough. But that's okay. Spencer's good. No fans in Winnipeg. None. Spencer Martin... Ready for another start. First goal of the game, Besser to Miller. Power play marker, 1-0 for the Canucks. One more look. Pedersen starts it. This is good passing and a good finish for JT, and he's having a night. We'll show you more of him in a moment. Andrew Kopp gets kind of a lucky goal here on Spencer Martin. That's not a high stick. The puck was uh, low, but he did bat it out of midair here. So it's 1-1. To the second period, and JT does a little more. Besser from Luke Shen now across to JT Miller. Wrist shot beats Hellebuck. One more look. That was a, a clever pass take from Besser as well, and a nice shot from Miller. 2-1. JT, what's your hat size? Because you're going to get one. Well, I guess you won't get one because you're in Winnipeg and there are no fans, but you should get one because that's a hat trick. Before the second period, it's 3-1 Canucks after two. Okay, the Edmonton Oilers, as we mentioned, the Edmonton Oilers make that, are going to uh, be the team that gives Evander Kane another chance. They have signed him for the rest of this season after he was dropped by San Jose. He was recently investigated for a COVID protocol violation while he was with the Sharks minor league team, but the NHL says he is cleared of those allegations. He will not be suspended. Trevor Zegras, human highlight reel. Another spectacular moment for the kid as he goes Michigan on Montreal. The goal famously started by Mike Legg, Burnaby firefighter, when he was with Michigan back in 1996. All right, Canada-Honduras World Cup qualifying, no Alfonso Davies. Honduras has never been a friendly place for the Canadians to play, but this is a different Canadian team. They're good, and when you're good, you get lucky. 
That's an own goal. Dejan Buchanan's cross is headed in by Honduran defender Daniil Maldonado. It's 1-0 for Canada. Milan Borian, brave. Comes out and knocks this potential chance away. Then in the second half, Borian with another great stop. The diving save off the header. That was going in. They don't have Davies, but they do have Jonathan David, who is second in scoring right now in France. And he's got the ball, he's got a break, and he's got a goal. Canada's now up 2-0 late in the second half in Honduras. This will be a huge win for the Canadians. This is the first ever training camp as Whitecaps head coach for Vanny Sartini. And uh, since everything Sartini does seems to be a bit different than his contemporaries, why would training camp be the same as everybody else? They are doing it Vanny style. Training camps can get a little monotonous, day after day of pretty much the same thing, with actual preseason games still a couple of weeks away. But with Vanny Sartini running the show, monotony is not an option. He keeps things fun, but still competitive. Good, 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 good. Thank you. Play. What we try to do is everything that involves also a little bit of competition there and also all the exercise that we do. It's Everyone is... Uh, he wants to win even the little game, the little possession that we do, and uh, that's the right mentality. And uh, uh, it helps a lot that, uh, you know, the core of the group is the same as last year. So the few guys that are new, the other guys are pushing them. So I'm, 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 I'm really happy about it. One of those new guys is defender Tristan Blackman, acquired by trade back in December. Blackman played four years at LAFC, so he's still on the West Coast. Soccer is pretty much soccer wherever you play. What is not routine is the head coach, Vanny Sartini. Never, one of a kind, one of a kind. Absolutely one of a kind, can't even fault that at all. Well, to nobody's surprise, Ben Roethlisberger has announced that he's retiring from the NFL after 18 seasons, all of them with Pittsburgh. Leaves the game at the age of 39. He will now await a call from the Football Hall of Fame. He'll get in. He's eligible in 2027. He holds a number of uh, Pittsburgh Steelers passing records, including most TD passes, most yards, most completions. He's also won two Super Bowls, and he's won 165 regular season games as a starting quarterback, which is the fifth most in NFL history. And he always looked like he had extra padding under his jersey. He really fills out the uniform, but he is going into retirement. There you go. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, how a BC man is making waves in Hollywood for holding his breath. Campbell River's Kirk Kroc is a diver in demand, training elite divers and Hollywood elite alike. Jada Rand has more on Kroc's many underwater accomplishments and how he taught Tom Cruise how to hold his breath. Kirk Kroc is so passionate about diving, his latest project is mapping out even more dive sites in BC. It's only frog kick is what I did last time. For more than three decades, Kroc has been training and educating the diving community. He's a trailblazer in free diving, writing the book on safety and technique, leading his students to the pinnacle of their sport. In free diving, I've trained seven different athletes to 23 world records and uh, a dozen or so athletes to hundreds of national records. We can't be in a constant state of readiness on the back. He's worked on the documentaries Racing Extinction and The Cove, and Hollywood has called upon his expertise. I worked with this amazing like free diver and he came in and I did four sessions with him. His name's Kirk and 
I called him Captain Kirk. He trained Margot Robbie to hold her breath for an extended period in the movie Suicide Squad. That's Kirk playing Batman in this underwater scene. Turns out he was made for the role. A head of stunts kind of asked me if I knew anyone with my jawline and, you know, about 6'3", that uh, might want to do a stunt and had a great breath hold. Normally, in underwater sequences, people hold their breath for 10 seconds, 15 seconds max. It was Kirk who taught Tom Cruise to hold his breath for six minutes for this intense underwater scene in Mission Impossible 5. <laughs> Cruise requested a lot more training than he actually needed. He managed to do 130 feet, 40 meter breath hold dives over the course of a couple of days. So, you know, really remarkable what he was capable of. Now Croc is working with James Cameron on Avatar 2 and 3 after a chance encounter on a flight to L.A. Went up and handed them the card saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained, I'm a free diver. And I was about to say something else and he said, how long can you hold your breath? The answer to that question is seven minutes. For a guy from Saskatchewan, which is not exactly a diving hotbed, Croc has carved out an incredible career while continuing to push new depths below the surface. Diving for me is going to be a something that's lifelong and I mean I don't think I'll ever step back. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. I can hold my breath for all of maybe 15 seconds. Well, I lose my breath running down the <laughs> stairs to do this show, so. <laughs> good point, good point. <laughs> All right, final word on weather to Christy. All right, so the fog is going to redevelop overnight. Tomorrow morning, cold, frosty again in that fog, but we are expecting sunshine at the very least by afternoon, hopefully even throughout the morning hours. Exciting to see the sunshine again. All right, that's all the time we have. Thanks for watching. Have a good night, all.